Hey all, Joel Seach here, Principal Advisor. And this is Arnie, Tax Professional. And this week's podcast, we'll be discussing all things property versus shares and the hot debate, the age-old debate of what's preferred, the pros and cons of either or options. <laughs> I love that. And then we delve into some good Q&A, self-managed super fun question and uh, an investment or how, how to pick stocks question. So thank you. And a really good either or from Jolie this week. I loved it. And a great Rivkin's Rules quote out of the book too. Ah, the Bible, the best segment on Money in the Tank. (laughs) (laughs) All right, crew, enjoy. And as Arnie calls you, his self-named people I saw on Facebook, Tankers. Don't know whether uh, whether that was a thing they just came up with, but I like it. Uh, enjoy, (laughs) Enjoy today's episode, Tankers. Cheers. Welcome back to Money in the Tank. Uh, Hope you all enjoyed last week's uh, five steps to get yourselves ready to invest. Uh, It was a great podcast that we enjoyed doing and hopefully you guys got heaps out of it. Yeah, I loved last week and I especially loved the introduction of Rivkin's Rules and I'm excited to see what you've come up with for this week's Rivkin's Rule. Absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to it. I've got it sitting right here in front of me. Uh, it actually says Australia's top-selling investment book in 1999. Um, <laughs> and as I mentioned last week, I don't know necessarily whether it's all investment. It's uh, it's a lot of uh, a lot of personal glorification of my man Rifkin. But let's. Uh, what I'm going to do each week is I'm, instead of picking a quote, I'm just going to flick through the book and just land my finger on a page. All right. Yes, so, I want I want the randomness. I want just like yeah, random right. Rifkin wisdom. And because we're on podcast, I'll try and get it in the mic so you can hear the book flicking. (laughs) All right. So we've landed on the page. Never expect perfection in a marriage. It almost never exists. (laughs) (laughs) The peeler from Rivkin himself. I think we might. um, Let's do our best to try and bring Rivkin's rules back to the bestseller list. He's, he's not letting us down at all with, uh, with with nothing to do with investment. Oh, probably marriage. Yeah, marriage and partnership, financial partnership. I get what he's on about. That's cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I you love know, it. Actually, you know, like if we actually delve into that, like that little pearl of wisdom, and we, uh, it's probably a good topic for another podcast. I feel like uh, money and marriage is something you really need to get a handle on. Otherwise, it can cause problems, but it could also be a good cause of success for, you know, for setting yourself up. Oh, for sure, dude. In, in the uh, you know, in the the advisor landscape that I you know, you know look after a number of clients, the the biggest thing is working as a team, working as a partnership, as a financial partnership, and marriage is the number one cause of fights and issues in life. So uh, <laughs> you said you marriage know, is the number one cause. Yeah, money. <laughs> uh, sorry, yeah, money, money and marriage. So money, they go hand in hand. So money is the number one cause of marriage split ups and marriage issues. So I can believe if you it. can actually if you can actually get a handle on that, it's, it goes a long way. In to creating a great partnership. So my man Rifkin might be actually onto something there. Uh, he's wise. He was wise, Indeed. Rifkin. <laughs> Indeed. I'm, um, so it's like, you know, today we're talking about property versus shares, pros and cons, but general in nature and disclaimer, like Jolly and I like both of them, but for the, for the sake of the pod, we thought it might be fun to do a bit of a debate. So I'm going to take the share side. Jolly, you're going to take property side. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. And uh, yeah, absolutely. We, we love uh, both. I think both definitely have a great place in their port in uh, people's portfolios. And uh, yeah, clients, you know, I advocate as well. I also have a good mixture and it, and it really helps overall. Um, you've got property, domestic property, like we will discuss today. And I'll tend to refer just to sort of your domestic residential property. But as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, you've got a range 
of property out there, like your commercial property, uh, your property unit trusts, which is your shopping centers and whatnot. You've got infrastructure. So, but we'll talk mainly resi property today. And, and Arnie, you can talk stocks, I guess, more broadly as well. Yeah, well, you sort of touched on one of my pros there. So you said we'll talk about it at a later date, but listed property trusts or what are known as real estate investment trusts, automatically, I think that's a pro for shares because it's a share-like asset. But, you know, you can get, uh, dip your toes into property. I don't know if you'd call that property or if you'd call that shares. What would you classify a REIT as? Yeah, well, it's traded. It can be traded like a share. So it's more liquid like a share and you can move in and out of it. But its basis or background is property. Just like you can have an Australian share that is more... Uh, in, a, in a property area. So it might be a company that leases property out, commercial property or um, plays in that commercial property development space, but they're listed as a, as a public Australian share, for example. So they're, they're a share, but they're actually dealing in property. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, just sorry, before we get right into this, I just want to acknowledge that I'm working with a bit of a handicap here, just in case Jolly beats me in this debate. I've got my schnauzer Evie on my lap because she was losing it before. So if you hear some barking or if you hear a bit of schnauzer snoring, that's Evie. And also, I'm working with a cold here. So apologies, everyone, for my uh, nasally voice. Just uh, setting the agenda early, mate. Just giving yourself a little bit of an out clause, are you? Well, you know I love to win. I'm a competitive <laughs> beast. <laughs> All right. Well, you start us off, man. Tell us about shares. Tell us some of the, the yeah, tell us tell us a pro or two that you like about shares. All right. I'll hit you with a pro and you see if you hit me with a con. So my number one pro to shares is that they are liquid assets. So, you know, if I want to, if I have a certain amount of money in my shares and then something pops up that's an emergency and I don't have enough in my emergency fund to cover it, as we touched on last week, well, then I can pretty quickly move some of my shares into uh, cash and in a couple of days I'll have that cash in my bank account ready to go. So that's my number one pro. Very good, very good. And uh, I don't like, again, I don't like hitting you with a con because I do like shares, but for the sake of this <laughs> argument, a con could be, Arnie, why are you selling down your shares to get access to cash when shares should be a medium to long-term play and we shouldn't be getting in and out regularly? Yeah, you're right. And I guess if I could... <laughs> If I could help you out a bit, which maybe I shouldn't because you know I love to win, but also sometimes if you are forced to sell your shares because of something like that, you probably might be selling at the worst possible time, which touches on another con, which I'll touch on later. But yeah, that's my first pro and it was a good rebuttal. I think we'll split that half, half a point each. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So I might start off with a pro for property, but then you could probably get me with a con just on the adverse to what we just did then. So property... I need some extra cash, but I really don't. I really can't sell my property because it's going to take a while to get it on the market, and I might only need five grand. Um, so, property being less liquid means that it's harder to touch, meaning that it's going to be a bit more out of reach to sell at the drop of a hat and use that uh, use that money. Yeah, that's right. Like property isn't a liquid asset, but I feel like if you're getting into property, then you're probably thinking I'm going to get into it for the long term. So, I don't know. Well, if I, on the flip side of that, right, like there's a psychological effect because if you're looking at your share portfolio all the time, you're going to be seeing it dip and go up and dip and that can weigh on you. Whereas a property, you know, if it's valued at a certain point, uh, it doesn't matter. Like if you, if you don't need the cash, it doesn't matter if it's a liquid and you're not going to be suffering from that psychological stress of seeing the price go up or down. 
you're supposed to hit me with a con. You're supposed to say, yeah, that's exactly why shares are better because uh, you can't sell a room if you need to get access to some quick money. Yeah, but I was agreeing with you. <laughs> supposed was, to be pro-con. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I didn't realize. Like, let me let me step back a second. Um, so a, a I set con, you up with a perfect con. Well, that's right. Yeah, go, go on. Hit me with another one. Do another pro and I'll come back with a con because you've given the con there. Go on. Yeah, so con for that one, yeah. As, as I mentioned, is you can't sell a door or, you know, a room of a house. If you need to get access to some money, property's more illiquid, so it's more of a, you know, a, a longer-term play, but like shares are. But if you need access to cash, it's a little bit harder with a property unless you're starting to look at refinancing, et cetera, which is another kettle of fish. Or you um, want to rent a room, you could rent a room. You said you can't sell yeah. a room, but you could rent a room. Could rent a room out, which provides you with income, but not necessarily capital. So difference between the two, whereas shares, you get your income, but you also could sell them down to get some capital. Oh, I've dropped um, the ball. I think you win a point on that one. That sucks. No, that's all right, mate. That's okay. <laughs> you, got a, you got a cold and a dog in your lap. Um, all right. So the next one for property. Uh, what have we got on the property here? So let's chat about volatility. So volatility with property. So we'll talk resi property. We'll talk, you know, Australia. We'll talk Melbourne specific. Yeah. A uh, little bit less volatile, I find, than shares. All right. Can you extrapolate on that? Because how do you mean? So both they're both growth assets. So property and shares are what you'd call growth assets. So they're they're to hold and there to grow over the longer term, as opposed to say putting your money in the bank, which is what we call a defensive, a defensive asset. So, and I was chatting to Arnie before. So what we actually might do is another podcast on diversification and uh, holding different assets inside of your portfolio. So such as cash or such as shares and, and property. So we'll actually do a separate podcast talking about diversification and, and the reasons around it and why it, it, it works and, and how much to diversify. But in terms of property being a long-term growth asset, just like shares are, what we tend to find in Australia is that property, whether it be your principal place of residence or an investment property, it, it, it tends to be less volatile than shares. So what right, that get, means oh, is- Sorry to cut you off. I get what you're saying, but why is that a pro? Like why is yeah. property prices being less volatile a pro for, yeah. for property? So so touching on that point you mentioned before is it, from a psychological aspect, it means that you tend to worry a little bit less about the ups and downs. Whereas as you said, with your shares, you can go in and log into your account and check them regularly. And sometimes people check them too regularly uh, for, for a longer term asset. And they say, mm. oh, it's up or it's down. And it, it can have a psychological impact. And what I say to, to clients regularly is that the downs in a market, so let's say you have a down uh, of 5,000 or $10,000 and the up, and you get an up of five or $10,000, it can actually be three times more impactful on the psyche on the downturn. So from a subconscious level, you're actually feeling that downturn three times more than the upturn. So if it drops 10 grand, your, your property or your shares, you'll actually feel it three times more than if it goes up 10. Now, shares is just a lot easier to see. It's a lot easier to sort of see tangibly, whereas property, you're not going out there and, and, and working at the daily price of your property or, or working out the current value. You might check, check the auction results every now and then and, and see it over a period. But 
generally what you'll find is it's just less up and down than your shares. However, over the longer term, they actually perform quite similarly when you calculate your dividends and your franking credits. But that's probably an argument that I could give to you, Arnie. No, I actually love that because I agree with everything you said and like, yeah, the psychological effect um, does play a part. But I also feel like you've sort of touched on a pro for shares in that argument and that's like depending on your mindset because volatility with shares I see as a positive. When shares are volatile and we're seeing really big swings in stocks that I like, I see that as a buying opportunity, uh, buy the dip or BTFD. Um, you know, so it's like, I feel like you kind of hit a pro there as well. So uh, it's an interesting one. I do agree with you that you need to manage your mind um, set in both real estate and in stocks. But if you can, if you can change your mindset to volatility is good for me, if I've got cash on the sidelines, this is a buying opportunity in, in stocks, it's not really going to be a pro for property because you need to save up a lot more cash in order to take advantage of any volatility. So I guess there's no not real volatility in that market, but that leads me to another pro for shares and a con for property, which is um, barrier to entry, and that's cost. So to, to actually get into property, you need to have a substantial amount of money for a, a deposit. Um, and in shares, you don't really need to have that much. Like comparatively, you can have a lot less to get into you know shares. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, on the uh, the pro of, of shares, there yeah definitely the. The barrier to entry, which I'll touch on in a second, but uh, the volatility side of things is is really good if you have the psyche to get in when it's down. And that's sometimes the thing that people struggle with uh, when they've got that ups and downs or they see the down, they're like, oh, I don't know, I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. And then it goes back up again and you're a bit too late. So uh, regular investing or regular unemotional investing can really help in that regard. And, and you know things like dollar cost averaging or regular investment plans are really good, but we can touch on that at a later date, but that does really help with that psyche side of things. It's an unemotional type investment, whether it's up or down, it's the money's from the sidelines is going in. Oh, who wins uh, the point the on that one? Is it me or you? I'm trying to get a point uh, for you uh, just to give <laughs> up the ledger again. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, that's my take point. Volatility is good. <laughs> yeah, volatility is good. Um, yeah, so uh, property, so you're talking about shares, so refresh me. I was talking about barrier to entry. So barrier I think, entry, yeah. Yeah, I think a pro it. for shares and a con is barrier to yeah. entry. Yeah, barrier to entry definitely is one because you can get into shares that, you know, at a lower point, you can have, you know, a few grand and get into shares pretty easily and not have the, the cost be too significant. And obviously property, you need to save that little bit more to get in. And if it's your principal place of residence, it's a lesser save because you there's a lot of incentives to get, you know, your 5% deposit and your your government's got the um, the first home by, uh, what's it called, the lending insurance incentive where they can help you with the mortgage insurance. Yep. Um, that's when you buy a place and the bank puts on a on a on a on a premium on that purchase price because they want to, they have to take out insurance because the deposit's not there. So the government's released some incentive to help with that. But uh, yeah, barriers to entry definitely is one. Uh, but once you can get that barrier to entry overcome, whether it be your first deposit or whether it be uh, getting in for your first principal place of residence you're then what's called leveraging or you're borrowing that money to then invest in something that uh, over the longer term will do a good job for you and, and will be a little bit less volatile. So once you can overcome and get that savings and get past that barrier to entry, then you're, what, you're what's called magnifying your gains over time. So it means you're leveraging in using that deposit you've saved so it might be twenty grand, it might be probably twenty grand in different states, but let's say Melbourne, fifty to maybe eighty grand to get into your first home or, or investment property. 
and then you're borrowing the extra on top of that, whether it be five, six, seven hundred thousand, and that's what's called leveraging or gearing in, and you're magnifying the money on that return. So you might be paying interest on that on that loan at three percent current rates, roughly at the moment. Always general in nature when we're talking about this, but you might be getting growth on that money. That seven hundred grand you borrow, you might be averaging out some growth at around five, six percent. So that's what we call uh, borrowing to in borrowing to invest or borrowing to buy into a property that hopefully over the longer term will average out a better return than the rate of ret- the rate of interest you're paying on it. Yeah, I feel like you've you've raised a really good point and a really good pro for property, and it's going to be hard for me to rebut this because that is like in my mind the main. Uh, the main pro of investing in property is that you get the power of leverage. And like you sort of touched on, I think we touched on this last week. Yeah, you can you can leverage into stocks as well with um, what's known as a margin loan. And, and it has similar features. Like I think with certain stocks, if you get margin, um, there's a, a percent that they will be happy to loan you. So if it's a very safe stock like a CBA or a, a Woolies, they might say, you know, you can borrow X amount to buy these shares and then there's a loan-to-value ratio with that as well. And then if, uh, you know, something happens like a big crash and the value of those shares goes down, then you might fall below the loan-to-value ratio and they might call you on uh, the margin loan and say, put more money into your account to cover it or we're going to, you know, force sell your shares to cover it. And then you might, you might have to sell those shares at the worst possible time. Whereas with property, if you're leveraging like that, it's very unlikely that, even though the bank can call you on the loan, it's very unlikely they're going to call you on the loan and anything happens, you're going to still have that property, you know, there working for you. You can use the leverage to do whatever you want, basically. Like you could, you know, get that equity appreciation and then take out that equity for another deposit and sort of start snowballing your property portfolio. So I guess the only downside to that is, is if there is a big crash in the housing market, similar to what we saw in America in 2008, then you'd have a really bad situation on your hands there. But if everything else remains equal, then that's a big pro for property, the power of leverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. And, and look, the, yeah, the property market, Australia to America is quite different. But um, I think yeah, the 08 uh, issue that America had was some uh, bad debts around there. And Australia, we were really untarnished with that. Uh, we've got sort of different lending regs here as well uh, in, in, in relation to that. But I'll give you a, um, uh, a con on a property and you can give me um, – so it's sort of flipping the script here. So I'm going to throw a con <laughs> out for a property. So okay. as, a, as a property, let's say a property investor, so you're getting uh, into your residential property, you've got what's uh, called your rental yield or your, your rent return. And with that comes – uh, uh, obviously, your rental management, so usually outsourcing to a manager, we'd recommend is, is a better way to go to a professional that will do a job for you and it, and it can actually separate you from the investment. But then it does come with your headaches of uh, tenants being in there or, or issues going on with the property or tenants not paying uh, or your vacancy rates. So if you, if you can't re-let it or re-rent it for a month or two, that can then cause an issue in terms of your return on that money uh, that you've put out. So the rental yield or the outlay. Uh, a con uh, for a property is having to deal with all those things that go along with being a, a property investor or a property owner. Whereas when you're owning a stock, you're owning a, a CBA or 
whatever stock, we're general in nature, we're not recommending anything specifically, but you don't have to deal with those day-to-day problems. That's what they have uh, a CEO and they have a board for is they deal with all the issues. They make sure that they're uh, paying out the dividend that they'd like to pay out. That can be obviously changed as well. So a bit like rental, if you're missing out on some rent, the dividends can be adjusted, but they do like to keep a fairly stable dividend. So uh, a good thing about owning shares is you don't have to deal with those headaches of being a, a, a property owner. Man, I feel like you just stole like my number one pro. I should have led with this as my number one pro because I have written down, yeah. I've written down in front of me, no extra work with shares, and like, and then I, on the con side, I've got this long list for property of you, you got to deal with tenants, you got to deal with contractors, yeah. you got to deal with the loan, you got to deal with you know if you're managing the site yourself, you've got to drive to and from. If you're not invested in the state you live in, that means you have to pay a property manager. You know, uh, if people are calling you for little problems like a light bulb going out or something or or something to do with the council. I don't know, transaction costs, mortgage insurance, stamp duty, legal fees, um, land tax, rates, capital gains tax, vacancy costs, capital costs. So I had all that written down as a, if you want to deal with the headaches of property, be my guest. But as, <laughs> as, as a pro share man, it's like I just put my money in and watch the dividends and the capital appreciation roll in. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why I've got both and I like both. So I like I like shares. I like property. Uh, they've got their pros and cons for sure. So you've you've nailed a few there. And that's why all the listeners out there to, you know, when we will talk diversification in a future podcast, it's be always be mindful, always be open-minded about writing down the list of the pros and cons as to why you're doing something and why you're getting into an investment in particular, because they do, they come with pros and cons of either or shares. You can just outsource all those issues and they, the, the company will deal with that and they 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 they, they pay the dividends and, and you take the, the dividends from it. Uh, they'll deal with all the headaches. They pay for the expenses. You just pop your money in and, and let it do its job over time and it'll be up and down. With the property, you're the you're the, the CEO of that property. You're managing it. You're looking after it. You obviously pay, usually pay to outsource a rental manager, but you're, you're the, the one-stop shop at the end that has to say yay or nay and, and deal with these things. So uh, they do comes, come with their ups and downs and uh, pros and cons. So always be mindful of that, guys. Oh, I think that's a point each because I feel like we're on the same team here. <laughs> this is yeah. We're arguing for each other, but that's good. Um, my, la- my last one, so I'll give you my last pro and con for both property and, and shares was sentiment or emotion. So I was sort of thinking that the stock market, I guess this ties into volatility, but sentiment can play a big part in stock prices in the short term. And if you are an emotional investor and you see a huge dip and you're worried about losing money, you might sell out. But conversely with property, sentiment or emotion can be a pro or a con depending on what side of the transaction you're on because people get emotionally attached to properties and they think, okay, this property is worth, I don't know, 600,000, but I really love it. I'm gonna offer way above the, you know, the price. I'm going to offer 660. No one comes near that, and then the the seller, just by virtue of uh, taking advantage of the sentiment, pockets some extra money. Whereas in uh, share price, you, you don't really have any control over that sentiment. It's just what's market driven, and then you know you might have to accept whatever price it is at the time when you want to sell your shares. 
yeah, and that's your that's your market being the the overriding factor, what the sellers are willing to sell for, what the buyers are willing to buy for in in shares. And you know, it's funny with share sentiment now. You can get uh, the sentiment and the emotions running hot on shares. You know, you got your Elon Musk uh, tweets <laughs> that can pose some positive sentiment, and people can jump on around it. Um, just like you know, if Bitcoin's running hot, people jump on jump on Bitcoin off the back of seeing some articles or seeing some sentiment. So emotion does drive both. But property uh, is yeah probably one of those things that's more emotional in nature when you're making a purchasing decision. It probably comes into play more for a principal place of residence when it's going to be your home you live in because you'll buy into that. You'll sort of see it and you'll say, oh, I really love that setup of how they've got the dining. And, and people will stage a lot when they're selling properties now because they want to get that emotional buy-in. Uh, it's a smart thing to do. So I think, um, yeah, definitely there's more emotion because you, especially for a PPR, you're going you're gonna to live there. So you want to see it how, you know, you want to have it set up. So, and, and fear of missing out. So FOMO at the moment is, is running pretty hot because there's lack of supply on there and, and there's a high demand. So people are wanting to get in and I think they feel from the pandemic that they're, if they've been in the city or they've been in an apartment or they've been in a unit or a townhouse that they're not wanting to be in, they want to actually get some land component. People are, are really sort of pushing and driving to get into something where they feel secure and they feel safe and they feel happy. So if we do ever have a lockdown again, they've got where they want to be and they, they, they feel comfortable in that. Hopefully, fingers crossed, no further lockdowns. But that's what I think we talk about when we're talking emotion of, of property. It, it does drive that FOMO and it drives that um, wanting to move in and feel and be somewhere. Whereas shares, you're probably less emotionally attached because you're not uh, really mindful of, um, you're not having to move into a company. You, you, you're just seeing how it's operating and making sure that it's going to you know tick over and, and have positive growth over the longer term. Well, you kind of touched on two other pros of property there. Um, one, tangible. Yeah, you can go sort of see it for yourself as opposed to, you know, a, prop, a share that you might own. And two, you sort of touched on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is one of the main things I remember from uni. And the base level of hierarchy of needs is food, shelter and water, right? Everyone needs shelter. So everyone needs a house basically to rent or to buy, to live in. So the supply demand side of it, and I guess, you know, land – the desirable land in areas people want to live in, that's a big pro because it's going to drive up the price. Yeah, and it's very, um, it, it's something that's probably goes under the radar is that feeling of people wanting security and wanting to feel where they're going to be safe and comfortable and have shelter and it's human nature, isn't it? So, um, you know, all the extra things that you do to a property once you maybe get it is your, is your extras, your bells and whistles, but that base level of security and feeling um, really sort of forms a foundation around uh, owning or, or, or being a property owner or, you know, being a property investor potentially. There's a lot of rent vestors nowadays, which means that they're happy just to rent where they want to live and they'll buy a property elsewhere they, where they may don't feel as emotionally attached, but they feel like they, they want to buy a property where there's, they've got some comfort to know that um, they could potentially move into it down the track or that it's going to be a, a good long-term investment for them because they're happy to rent where they're, where they're working at the moment. Yeah, I never did that, but I like that concept of rent vesting. You know, living where is desirable to you, but buying somewhere where you can afford, which also meets all the other criteria for an investment property, like we are talking about last week, or the other week, uh, growth drivers. So, yeah, yeah I yeah, think that's spot a good on. one. Yeah, just just like um, in Melbourne at the moment, the, pr- the prices are quite high, but people might start 
you know, they might buy a, an investment property interstate if they, you know, if they get the right advice and guidance and feel comfortable doing so. So they're happy just to rent in Melbourne, but they own a, a property in Tassie as an example. So that's just an example of rent vesting, um, and it's a it's an interesting one that may come, you know, become more and more part of normal normal everyday uh, operations in Australia down the track. Could be. So do you have any more pros or cons for either side? I reckon we've touched on some rivers today, Arnie. I think we've hit uh, hit some good ones. We've hit some 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 great options for either or um, for 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 shares versus properties. And and as I said, I, I disclaimer full disclaimer. I love both. I, I recommend um, both um, for clients to have as a diversified portfolio. It's really good to have both. So uh, yeah, I, uh, I I do think there's a part to play for both property and shares in everyone's uh, investment portfolios as they move forward in life. Yeah, I like both as well. Uh, and not that I was counting, but thanks for participating, Jolly. But I think that was a resounding victory for the shares. So <laughs> <laughs> with a dog on my lap and a cold, uh, well done, shares. <laughs> Good on you, shares. Well done. Well done. Uh, oh, that's cool, man. All right, so. That was a good overview debate, stocks versus property. I feel like everyone loves that debate. Um, we're going to jump into some Q&A, and we've got a few good Q&As, and they're coming in pretty consistently. We're getting one or two a week. So I think uh, the first one we got, Jolie, was self-managed super funds, the pros and cons of employer super funds, industry super funds, or self-managed super funds. So I feel like this is a big topic, and I feel like we can give a good high-level overview now. But this might be worthy of its own full podcast. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was actually thinking that we should do a, a superannuation podcast just gen- as a general disclaimer about super and a general information and, 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 and guidance for uh, helping people understand super. I think it's a great topic to have as a podcast because people, that are, our listeners that are in their 30s, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, even 50s, that uh, want to understand super the earlier you can understand how it works for you, the better it'll be over the longer term. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it is really dependent on your circumstances. Like self-managed super funds are going to require, like you said, a lot more management and you need to have the skills to manage the super fund. Yeah, for sure. So self-managed super funds, the ATO recommends usually around two hundred and fifty to 300000 to invest and set up a, a self-managed super fund. Uh, people will do self-managed super funds for various different reasons, like you can own a residential property inside of a self-managed super fund. You can own a commercial property inside of a self-managed super fund and you can actually lease that property uh, back if you if you run a business or a company you can actually um, have a commercial property that you can utilize for your own business and pay that rent back into the uh, self-managed super fund or smsf as it's known as an acronym so that's some examples of self-managed super funds but if you strip it back and you think about just super in general the the main reason you want to have super is to have it work for you for the longer term for retirement so uh, whatever you do with super, it needs to be for the right reasons and it needs to be to provide return and growth over time to allow that money to do its job and work best for you. So not about the latest fad or setting one up to, to do a certain job and, and the amount of times you see self-managed super funds set up where the people don't know the returns it's getting or the historical performance. So if you don't know that and if, you, if you're underperforming the broader market day to day or year to year, then um, so the reasons of owning a self-managed super fund and if you aren't tracking the returns properly, they can, can become less and less significant as you go if you're finding that uh, the outcomes are not even beating a normal benchmark of just a regular everyday superannuation fund. Yeah, that's exactly right. And maybe I can just like, 
there's some really good information about self-managed super funds versus other super funds on the ATO website and on um, ASIC, I believe. But just like at a high level, these are some of the, um, the differences. So self-managed super funds can have a maximum of four members, uh, but you know, obviously other super funds, there's no limit. Uh, with the responsibility of a self-managed super fund, the trustees are expected to have the knowledge of the tax and super laws, and they must make sure that the fund complies with those laws. So they are bearing the risk. But with other super funds, obviously the compliance risk is then borne by the professionals uh, and the licensed trustee. In investments, uh, Jolly was mentioning like what you can invest in in self-managed super funds. So the trustees have to develop and implement their own investment strategy for the fund and make all the investment decisions. But in other super funds, you are allowing uh, the control of the asset mix and the risk level to be managed by uh, you know the, the other party. And they generally will choose those investments. I don't think you get much flexibility in a lot of them, correct me if I'm wrong, Jolly, to choose what investments you want if it's not self-managed. Uh, insurance. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Tell, tell us about that point. Yeah, so we'll, we'll probably discuss it further when we do our super podcast. But yeah, you've got what's called pre-mixed investments in, in, in different super funds. There are super funds out there that can give you direct access to shares nowadays as well, uh, which you can select. But uh, yeah, more broadly, your general superannuation funds as your retails or your in, in industry funds will have a, a pre-mixed options that you can select. But we'll definitely... We'll definitely push that um, push that podcast down the track and really um, talk more broadly about superannuation and how the investments work and, and what different investments you can have inside of there because it can actually have a huge impact over the longer term. Yeah. The two other main points I was going to touch on, which I won't delve too high, I'll, I'll go high level, I won't delve too deep into them, is one is insurance. You know, Most other super funds that aren't self-managed offer uh, life insurance, TPD, those sorts of things. Whereas if it's a self-managed super fund, you're going to have to organize that yourself Typically, it might be um, higher premiums if it's self-managed super fund. And regulation, obviously, self-managed super funds are highly regulated by the ATO and um, trustees have to engage with the ATO to manage the fund, whereas the benefit of um, having another industry super fund or a retail super fund is that they're going to deal with that for you. You generally do not have to engage uh, on that matter. Yeah, correct. So uh, what a, uh, I think some really great points there on the SMSFs and, and you mentioned about, I think you mentioned the investment strategy, you've got to formulate that and you've got to work to that investment strategy. And as I said before, what it boils down to is what the outcome is you're going to get on that that money and how it's going to work for you over the longer term. If if you're outperforming and you're doing a great job with it over the longer term, then that's fantastic. But if it's consistently underperforming or you're not invested in market or you're not diversified well enough, then you've got to start to question the reasons around it and should you be managing it. So uh, the ones that I see work are the ones that, as we mentioned before, they're for a specific reason or serving a specific purpose or that investor or that person wants to really get involved and loves doing it. Yeah, and again, we're going to touch on this in the 50-50 topic, but it all comes down to choice, personal investment style, that's why we started this because everyone's different. So I think it's a great topic to delve into deeper. And the, the next question we got was actually, uh, I don't, I'll say Carl with a K again. Our, our long-time listener, Carl with a K, hit me up and asked me for some stock recommendations. And I said, you know, this is general in nature. I can't give you any specific recommendations. But um, they specifically asked me about Tesla and the genomics space. And as an example, I feel like when you – when you want to, and Jolly, I want you to chime in as well, but when you um, are thinking about the strategy you want to use for investment, obviously you and I have beat, beat the drum before about it's about time horizon, it's about uh, how long you're going to be in the market for. But when you have, if you want to be a stock picker and you're not going to be a passive investor into an index fund or a mutual fund, then you need to do the work in looking at 
you know, the the fundamentals of the company, or if I'm going to put it in Phil Town terms or Warren Buffett terms, it's you know, uh, the meaning behind the company, the moat, the management, and the margin of safety. So, when you're looking at a company like Tesla, um, as an example, this is just general in nature and not advice to buy Tesla. You need to start thinking about is that company overvalued, undervalued, and what are some of the catalysts that might drive the stock price higher or lower? And for Tesla specifically, there's um, a great analyst on Twitter called Gary Black Zero Zero, and he actually talks about like catalysts that are coming up in Tesla's future. So this is examples of things that may affect the share price, it may not, but. He talks about how there's things like the Berlin factory opening up and um, that's going to avoid import tax and shipping in, in Europe. There's the made in Germany Model Y. There's Cybertruck deliveries coming up. There's the Model 2 like affordable um, car that they're thinking about launching. There's full self-driving. So you've got things like that that are going to affect the growth of Tesla in future and that may still make it an attractive investment. But you need to decide that for yourself if you're not going to take a passive approach to investing. Yeah, I think you've hit really uh, a lot of the great points. And you know, one of the things with Warren Buffett is he's one of the best investors in the world. And he, he may only make one or two decisions a year on purchasing a stock, but he does it for the medium to longer term. He doesn't just buy it to you know, then decide to get out of it in a few months' time. Uh, he does these specific key decisions with a lot of information, a lot of research, and as you said, a lot of those uh, competitive advantages, the the moats, the consistent um, consistent return of, of something that he expects to occur. So when you're talking about investing and, and buying a stock, you need to uh, really understand the research behind it, why you're doing it. Uh, here's some historical return, what you feel about the company moving forward, um, the board that it has, uh, the management that it has, the, the asset position, the price of the company versus its earnings, which is called a PE ratio. So there's so many things that go into purchasing a stock that you need to, if you're going to buy individual stocks, try to you need to really try to research unless you go down the track of just purchasing a basket of stocks like we've mentioned before, uh, such as an ETF, it does remove that leg workout and then you're effectively buying into an index or, a, or an active management index as well. So there's there's a lot of different um, options out there, but you need to be mindful and do your research behind why you're getting into something and the reasons around it. Yeah, that's spot on. Warren Buffett, Just I think we mentioned this in another podcast, but just recently he bought Chevron and he bought some pharmaceutical companies and Chevron's an oil and gas company and that's... Um, a bit of a contrarian play at the moment because there's a huge uh, push for hot stocks in electric vehicles and you know green renewable energy, and and Warren Buffett has looked at that industry. He's intimately understands the industry. He's looked at the fundamentals. He knows the cash flow he's going to get out of it probably for the next twenty to thirty years. Even though Warren Buffett, touch wood, I hope he lives that long. But you know he's he's investing for the long term. And what I mean by that is is he he thinks that investment is sound for X amount of time, and if nothing else changes. The fundamentals stay the same, then he will stay invested in it. If in 20 years' time that business is not as, as attractive, then he'll probably look at selling it. But yeah, it's something you need to, you need to understand all of those factors. Yeah, and he doesn't let emotion drive his decisions. So he's he's uh, intimately knowing this company that he's getting into. He's not hearing the noise from the outside. He's, he's, he's understanding, he wants to understand this company in full and why he's making a decision around it to be fully confident of going into it and investing his money and obviously uh, his shareholders' monies as well. That's it, mate. Well, cool. uh, before, we, before we get into 50-50, I think we've mentioned Bitcoin a few times indirectly in this podcast, and I just wanted to say it's still going crazy. We might have to do a second like follow-up like crypto podcast just to 
just to delve into that again because I can't believe what I'm seeing. I want to I want to learn more about it still. <laughs> yeah, it hit a, hit another peak, and I think uh, I was thinking you know this morning when we do a diversification podcast that um, you know crypto or Bitcoin could be uh, you know put in as a conversation piece around a potential diversification play uh, because uh, diversification we'll talk about in the podcast where we talk about correlated and uncorrelated assets. So uh, I could definitely see cryptocurrency being part of a, a, a portfolio and a diversified portfolio going in the future, but uh, that's for another day. I like that. All right, Jolly, cool. your, your turn to hit us with a either or. Either or, 50-50, what's your choice? <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's hit it up. Uh, still waiting on a good name for us, guys. So if the listeners out there can get us a good name, that'd be great for that uh, this segment. But the 50-50 uh, choice or the either or choice this week is talking about uh, why we invest in something, why we do something, yeah, whether it be investment side or whether we do investment lifestyle side is overall the overriding choice. So when we talk about the either or segment, we're talking about either or choices, 50-50. And in lifestyle, you've got choices and in investments, you've got choices. So this week, we're talking about lifestyle out of what we're choosing in everyday life. So in this one here, we're talking about what do you prefer? Do you prefer Friday night weddings or Saturday night weddings? Because I've got a wedding coming up. It's a Friday night. So I wanted to hear your thoughts first, Danny what you prefer as a Friday night wedding or a Saturday night wedding? I love this question. And I got to say, I actually prefer a Friday night wedding because even if you're knackered at the end of a work day, it might be, if you, if you can sneak away early, even better, it gives you an opportunity. But even if you're knackered, getting to a wedding, nothing better to perk you up because it's just the vibes, it's all love. Everyone's having a wicked time. And then you got the whole weekend to recover if you need to, or just to you know bask in in the love and the afterglow of the wedding. So I'm all about Friday weddings. Um, we did ours on a Saturday, but if I could change, if I could go back in time, I'd I'd do mine on a Friday. What about yours? Undog, I'm with you. <laughs> Same point, mate. Friday night <laughs> weddings, all for it. Love a Friday night wedding. Our wedding was Friday night. I uh, love the feeling of potentially getting that half day at work or even taking the day off. And as you said, if you need to sneak away early or rushing from work, but then you've got that Friday night to look forward to and you've got that recovery happening for the Saturday, Sunday. So much prefer a Friday night wedding. Two of the best weddings I've ever been to were Friday night. One was yours and one was Aaron Monk's shout out and Sarah Monk's, I should say, and Ezra. So yeah, yeah, love a Friday night wedding. Awesome. Yeah. Good vibes and sometimes comes at a bit of a discount too than the Saturday nights. It shouldn't, but maybe we shouldn't let them onto that secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So save some money. Um, yeah, you go. So it'd be interesting to hear what people think, Fridays or Saturday night weddings. So that's your 50-50 for this week, crew. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast today. Um, this is Money in the Tank signing out. Joel Seach here. And Arnie. And uh, thanks very much, all. Keep the, keep the questions coming in, crew. Bye. Bye.